between an unjust and violent bourgeois status quo and a sustainable high-tech egalitarian future, between the nihilism of a collapsing neoliberal order and the radical optimism of global communization, between worlds, one dying, one being born, Woods reclaims aesthetics for the left, realigns consumption with socialism, and rejoins rebellion with revolution. Goodsforthepeople.com Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. Well, the presidential election is over. Joe Biden is going to be our president, which means that we can now transition into thinking about all of the awful things about our world that Joe Biden, as president, will not address. Like the incredible time crunch that American workers all over the country, all over a variety of industries, face. That is something that sociologist Jamie McCollum writes about in his new book, Worked Over. I interviewed Jamie for In These Times magazine about the book. Thanks to In These Times for letting us run the recording of our interview. And I will link to the written version of that interview in the show notes. Okay, here's my interview with Jamie McCollum. Jamie, hello. Hi, Micah. So, why don't you just start with explaining what what is going on with time for the American worker? What is the uh, what is the time situation for the American worker? So, I um, wrote about the sort of th- let's say three dimensions of it. One, uh, a rise of overall hours since the '70s, an increase in volatility and sort of unpredictable nature of worker schedules, and then also people not having enough uh, hours to make ends meet. So those three things together, I think, constitute um, sort of a snapshot of what people are dealing with. And it's a kind of contradictory situation, right? Because what you've just described is both people working too many hours, uh, but also people not working enough hours. I mean, there's a, there's a, but overall there's a kind of lack of control of people's overall time, like both at work and when they're not in work, right? There's a kind of tyranny uh, of the clock, both for people who are overworked and for people who are desperately trying to cobble together more work. That's right. That's right. So if you look at one, like people often ask me, and they, they focus on this one statistic, that work time has increased significantly since the 70s for all wage and salary workers, which it has. But if you dig into that, you get a much different picture. For example, most people are familiar with the idea that uh, tech workers and lawyers and corporate lobbyists, whatever, uh, put in 70-hour weeks, and they still work the longest out of everyone. However, what's I think most interesting is that it's low-wage workers who've increased their time the most. In other words, that that dynamic um, has been very significant. And I think we don't, too too often we don't appreciate that facet when people think about overwork. And so basically the graphs are kind of converging, like the the top line of of the highest paid uh, employees, uh, the number of hours that they work is converging with the line of the the lowest paid employees. And in part, that's because the lowest paid employees are because of the wage stagnation uh, that we all know about. uh, they're, They're basically trying to make up for that wage stagnation through working more hours. Right. Right. 
Exactly. So the working rich today um, tend to pull away from the rest of the people below them wage-wise through bonuses, higher wages, higher, higher salaries, etc. Uh, people at the bottom do it through working longer hours. And so there's been a trend for a long time of that, of basically, you know, as, as inequality grew, wages stayed the same. People could no longer afford to work less. Yeah, and this is kind of related to what the late anthropologist David Graeber talked about with technology, right? He said he he famously wrote about how you know 50 years ago we all thought that we'd have flying cars that 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 technology would have sort of provided for uh, all of our all of our needs and 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 we'd be living in this kind of techno utopian society and, and instead life has gotten a lot worse in many ways for many people and the same is true of work time there used to be people like Keynes used to say that we would have basically more free time than we knew what to do with and instead we find uh, ourselves working longer hours than ever our work sort of colonizing into the nooks and crannies of our lives and any nook and cranny that it can find uh and and so in, instead of being uh, arriving at that utopia in which we all have time to uh, you know to what is it hunt in the morning uh, fish in the fish in the afternoon and read criticism at night uh, we are we're just working on morning uh, afternoon and evening exactly so Keynes thought uh, that we would have a fifteen hour work week fifteen hour work week by I think it was something like twenty thirty. Um, and there was good reason to think that, you know, from for about 100 years, the hours of labor steadily declined. Um, the workday declined, the work week declined uh, when people won the weekend, when workers won the weekend, and um, the working year declined. And it began to shift in, in the 70s and, and stagnate and, and return to higher. But Keynes, Keynes was onto something. I mean, I think that... He thought through um, increased production and compound interest, we would get that leisurely society. And he was right about the compound interest part. He was right about the uh, profitability part. He was wrong about the time, but we can't fault him. Well, so somebody was collecting that compound interest, right? It just wasn't the vast majority. And that's exactly the point, right? Exactly the point that like leisure actually is expensive. And um, there was, so Benjamin Klein Honeycutt wrote a great, history of this and argues that in the 40s when leisure um, people began people uh, began desiring more leisure and leisure cost more money and therefore they stopped desiring shorter hours to work longer to make more money to avoid to, to pay for leisure um, but there does seem to be also there's a stagnation of hours in the 40s and it does even further decline into the 60s and then as i said it picks back up in the 70s so i want to talk about the details of how all of this happened and and some of the sort of uh the the, the details of what this looks like which you go into in great depth in the book but first sort of on a theoretical level i mean what is what does this mean for a society to to lose for for so many people in the society to lose control of their time i mean when you say they lose their time you mean lose control of their life like they 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 do not have control 
over the most uh, the most basic the, the thing upon which everything else depends, which is your time, right? Uh, right. And, and and you've you've lost it. You're you're just working longer and longer hours, or maybe you're somebody like the target worker who you uh, profile, who is just constantly trying to figure out how he's going to. He's spending his time figuring out how to spend more time at work uh, because he needs more hours. I mean, uh, we're we're all just spending all of as much time as as we have on on work and figuring out details of work and working more and so like what 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 is wrong with this on a kind of big picture level uh from the from the point of view of like a functioning democratic society right right that's great so you know who controls labor in any society controls time uh they control when we have weekends they control when we see our families they control when we raise our kids when we eat when we sleep when we get up in the morning uh when we go to bed at night it's basically controlled um there's a, a rhythm to it that is very attached to work and, it, and it's not the other way around um and i think that general fact uh shows that when 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 our work time is out of our control so is our other time um, and to me that is um, criminal <laughs> it's, very, it's it's criminal and um, so there is sort of a, a moral or ethical polemic that was running through me when I was writing when I was writing this book um, that I that I did feel um, people were in general being um, not just the time squeeze which we often hear about but really being pushed around and their lives being very disrupted and undermined by, by sort of a work intensive society. So not one with just long hours, but one which um, you were so dependent on your employer to help you plan your life. And that I think is a really dismal uh, way to live. Well, not to mention that I think you mentioned somewhere in the book that you can't have things like democracy without having the time to participate in civic institutions, in political activism, in anything outside of your work. Right. I mean, we all like every year, every election, someone says that we should have the Tuesday election day off, but we never seem to get it off. Right. <laughs> we never seem to actually get that far. And it's like obviously practicing, like enjoying our freedoms whatever they are, enjoying um, our, a democratic existence requires to have free time to do it. So I remember um, interviewing Sam Gindin, uh, who I know Jacobin has uh, published a lot. And I was like, look, what uh, what is time important for when it comes to having, you know, on being on the left? And he was like, well, you need time to organize, don't you? You know, and I was like, yeah. And he's like, it's a huge it's a huge problem if people are working 50 hours a week um, or 60 hours a week or erratically or trying to scrape together sort of a hodgepodge life. It's hard. To, it's hard to plan. It's hard to plot. It's hard to organize. And all those things um, are become disrupted when we have the kind of working sort of rhythm that we do. Right. You, you don't have time to participate in, in democratic life. And then also the point that we make all the time in Jacobin and that you make in the book is that, you know, the, the, the workplace itself, like when you're on the clock, when you're on the job, you, it, it is the furthest thing from a democratic uh, situation that you find yourself in. It is, it is really a kind of dictatorship in which your boss is like a, a king, a feudal Lord or something. Um, 
and 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 that's the situation when you're when you're at work when you're you know do you know when you've punched in uh but it's kind of like not only that but like your your time that you're supposed to have to be able to recover or to do whatever you want is instead spent worrying about work answering emails on your phone i mean even that that is a kind of extension of the undemocratic regime of the of the workplace into the rest of life right statistics capture leisure as time that is typically spent recovering from work in order to return back to work right just things like you know holidays or enjoying breaks or enjoying the great outdoors you know it's like those things take um time like the, you you need space and real distance to actually ponder and consider your life situation and if all you're doing is thinking about the job you just came from and preparing to go back to it the next day or whatever you just don't have time to do it so talk about the details of this time regime of, of 21st century work uh you know what are what are the, some of the highlights of, of what it looks like for the average worker in America, how is the time regime enforced? Uh, what are the what are the mechanisms? I, I became interested in this project because of the Fair Work Week movement. So the Fair Work Week movement um, highlights a lot of low wage retail, food service, um, healthcare, transportation workers whose work lives are not only occasionally they're longer, um, but most Clearly, they are disrupted by um, periods of like unpredictable and volatile breaks, and and not unpredictable in the sense that no one knows it's going to happen, like unpredictable by design. So their schedules are purposefully uh, removed from their control, often uh, given to the hands of either an actual algorithm or a or a supervisor um, who will make the schedule that is obviously best for that particular company, and that is surprisingly not the one that is best for the for the for the worker so it's a really interesting if you're thinking like what is the average day like i mean i worked in retail when i was younger and it's like you know your schedule three weeks in advance you know and that's just not the case anymore and it's really it's hard to um realize how disruptive that that fact is until i began talking to those workers yeah so talk a little bit more about that about the the workers that you profile in the book who are living under the, the the tyranny of the unpredictable schedule well I mean I remember doing interviews on 34th Street uh, in New York City which have people that are familiar with that know it's like a it's like a, um, a, a main shopping area which also happens to be right next to the uh, Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is where I got my degree. And then I did interviews in Burlington, Vermont, which is close to where I live here, um, and a couple other places. And when you talk to sales clerks, they'll say, um, you know, oh, well, I, I got my schedule three days ago, um, but I'm being sent home today at 3.15. And it's like, why 3.15? Why not three or four? And they're like, I don't know. And the, and, and the answer to I don't know is that 315 seems like in this case seems to be the exact maximum amount of time which they need that worker for and those schedules are based upon uh, predicted sort of an algorithm predicts optimum amount of salespeople and sales hours on the floor based upon the weather the time of year in other words people won't shop as much when it's raining so your schedule is more likely to be cut you're more likely to be held over 
um, at certain uh, at for other for other reasons, and so you just get a, a, a sense of people who are completely exhausted, not just by being overworked, but by being sort of overrun by the unpredictability. And the the other weird thing is that if you work an unpredictable schedule job, let's say you work at H and M, you have to fill on the, on your schedule. You have to fill out you're available 40 hours a week because you can work any of those times. That that forbids you from getting a job at the gap at the same time because they also require massive availability. So there's a kind of um, catch-22 in that situation. So that's a description of workers who are subject to these algorithmically defined schedules. But then you also have some stories about workers, uh, for example, one at a a Dunkin' Donuts that you lead one of your chapters with that is a really heartbreaking story. Right. So Maria Fernandez was a um, was something that people was the person people talked a lot about right when it happened. Maria Fernandez worked at three different Dunkin' Donuts in northern New Jersey um, at the time. She was supporting a partner who also had children. Um, she was an immigrant from Portugal and. Uh, one night she got off a shift, was not scheduled to start her next shift, I think till around 6 a.m., and slept in her car uh, overnight and never woke up. From a combination of exhaustion, carbon monoxide, um, she died in her car in her Dunkin' Donuts outfit. And for a while became something of a symbol of sort of a low-wage, overworked uh, worker in a, you know, in, a, in a place of great affluence. Um, and uh, for a while also there was calls from union leaders and activists um, that you know promised to sort of vindicate her cause um, those things didn't you know didn't exactly materialize but it is, it is an incredibly sad story and there are plenty of people who are still working those jobs and who are still subjected to those same schedules whose names you know we uh, we don't know because they haven't been the subject of sort of newsworthy tragedies that story is so moving, I mean, in part because it it uh, gives a real human face to what you're describing about like when pe- people who are low wage workers are, are making up for their stagnant wages by working longer hours. And it's, you know, you're not just, you know, it's not a casual thing that you're tossing a few hours on the end of your shift. It's like you're, you're sleeping in a parking lot uh, between low wage jobs and you're exactly. accidentally killing yourself with your Dunkin' Donuts uniform on as a result of sort of overworking and over overlapping schedules. Uh, but then you also have a lot in here that was about the new technologies that are used. I mean, not just algorithmically defined scheduling, but all kinds of wild uh, technologies that are used to sort of hyper tailorize work uh, in places like Amazon. Yes. Uh, yeah. Also, really terrifying technologies that are uh, used to, uh, like, for example, you talk about some technology, this a, a sociometric badge uh, that some MIT scientist created uh, that was used to, it's to be put around employees' necks that records all interpersonal interactions through an embedded microphone. How often do you talk to members of another gender? Does your voice convey confidence or anxiety? Are you waiting your turn to speak or constantly interrupting others? Uh, the company's called Humanize, ironically. Uh, Humanize can hear it all. 
I mean, this is this is some real uh, just dystopian stuff. Yes, it sounds it sounds like Black Mirror, and it's probably like worse than Black Mirror. Um, Humanize actually has stopped using the badges, and as far as I can tell, like I interviewed um, there the guy who invented those badges. He actually seems like comparatively thoughtful about what they're doing compared to a lot of companies who are just like, look, we, um, you know, uh, managers need greater control. I mean, workers have always hated this kind of surveillance, right? Ever since uh, Taylor walked into a factory with a stopwatch and a slide rule in the 1890s, um, workers have hated uh, managers sort of looking over their shoulders. And uh, today we, we do see the evolution of that idea. There's fewer balling foremen and, and far more, um, you know, computer-based, software-based type of systems. So, for example, uh, the humanized badges are one way. Um, a lot of software uh, can access your webcam and take random screenshots of your workspace from uh, wherever you are at a random time throughout the day. And I think the important part to remember about this stuff is not that it's weird or that it's Orwellian or whatever, but that it is the result of a disorganized working class. Um, the the office of whatever it's called, technology and management or something, some government office, you know, first talked about this in the early 80s when they were like, as unions begin to decline, uh, you know, managers, um, lo and behold, have more control over their workers through electronic means, like before the internet. And so this has been a problem for a long time. And um, I think that, you know, we see it even more today. I mean, look at what was originally used to govern freelancers and subcontracted employees, itself a symptom of declining power for workers, has now been uh, sort of uh, made viral through uh, the work from home kind of phenomenon where companies are using the software now on everyone. Where, you know, it was, so what was once sort of tried out on subcontractors and people in your distant, um, uh, you know, corporate entity somewhere else uh, are now being generalized. And all of this was before coronavirus, right? Before everybody was working at home, these technologies existed. I, I don't know. You know, you, you wrote the book largely before the pandemic, but I can only imagine that just as companies like Zoom are having a field day with uh, people like us using their technology as, as we speak right now, uh, you know, that, that that is now how we're interacting with each other uh, in 2020. I, I imagine the kind of uh, tools that you describe, like the one where... <laughs> people can have their the webcam taken over and 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 have their boss i mean we're used to we heard about that with edward snowden right like that the government had the capability to do this like the nsa could do right. whatever but you're actually just talking about just your boss just gaining the control to do that of you to monitor you right i mean we've, we've known a lot about this in, in the consumer realm for a long time like how advertisers and whatever get hold of your data it's really about data collection i mean this is also the main point when susanna um Shoshana Zupov writes about surveillance capitalism, like that it's a new regime of collecting data. And for a long time, people like Google and Facebook did not know what to do with that data. And now they do. And they can use it against you. They can use it in performance evaluations. They can do it when it comes to wages, uh, raises or bonuses. Um, and they can discipline you and fire you based upon 
your productivity. And they have no knowledge of that productivity unless they have the kinds of technology to snoop in on you. And now they have that. Um, they would not be able to do it as well and they would not be able to do it as easily if workers had more power to resist those things, which is you know obvious. And all, what's interesting also is that the work from home stuff came about, um, not that it was a conspiracy, but at exactly the time when uh, media people, educators, there was a wave, a small wave of some white collar organizing that was happening. Some of which has continued, but some of which was really stymied by the online uh, work from home phenomenon. And now companies are coming up with technology, not only to look at you while you work, but to stop you from organizing, right? You can't use email to discuss labor organizing. The NLRB uh, is going to rule probably soon. Um, you, you know, uh, Amazon and Facebook now, I think, have algorithms that can detect certain kinds of words and certain kinds of company-based email that would give them the uh, uh, suspicion that people are talking about unionizing. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's in some ways worse than Orwellian. Um, it's, and it's, in some ways, that is the interesting kind of sexy dynamic of it. But I think what I found was that the sort of the most mundane aspects of it um, are not just being watched, but really being um, controlled. Like it's a form of remote control. And you mentioned that the, the key issue here is not technological development. It is about worker power and who has control on the job or not. And I mean, that is the reason why we don't have the flying cars and we don't have the 15 hour work weeks, right? Like both, both of those ideas were advanced at a time when union density was at its highest, uh, when there was this uh, really uh, strong level of uh control that workers had through through unions and through the sort of ancillary effects of unions um and when when you when you don't have that control then the 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 technology continues apace but it is wielded uh, against you rather than for you it is used to develop the program that takes photos of you through your webcam and sends them to your boss rather than you know technology that would reduce the length of your workday and make your life easier Right, right. I mean, there is a clear need for um, for us to figure out ways to have technological innovation in a way that decreases our overall work and especially eliminates the most arduous jobs. Like that's an absolute good. And we should em- embrace those kinds of things and do what we can to facilitate them. The problem is, is that they, ca- they can't come at the expense of people's livelihoods. In fact, they should make their lives better, right? And um, for there was, you know, in the 50s and 60s, as um, workplace automation entered industrial factories at larger and larger quantities, there was there's some evidence that workers and their unions, which were much denser and stronger, were able to take advantage of it and translated some of that into free time uh, and or higher wages. And today, we don't have that same ability. So workers rightfully fear technology. I mean, I think most public opinion polls now show that workers are more afraid of being replaced by robots than they are of being replaced by, by, by migrants. And we should be afraid of neither, actually, right? I mean, it's the same. We should be afraid of our, our, our managers and our, our companies, which have the power to do that. So you brought up robots. Let's talk about robots and about uh, gig work and the sort of general erosion of of work in the U.S. and and throughout, especially the the wealthy world. Um, 
your your discussion of this in the book is is uh, kind of one of the most nuanced that I found of this because on the one hand there is this kind of breathless discourse that is like the robots are going to make everybody unemployed you know nobody's going to have a job anymore we're all going to be gig workers uh, and and it's just going to be completely awful for for most of us then on the other hand you have some people who say all of this rhetoric is so overblown there's actually very little evidence that roboticization or gig work are much more prevalent than they always had been like this is just what capitalism looks like is like instability and and uh you know people not having control of of their job and of their lives and you uh you you kind of take from both of those arguments uh based on uh the the data what, what the actual data looks like as well as examining you know companies who are adopting robots and 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 a number of other things so can you just talk about what uh, your analysis of what that uh future for work actually looks like i think it's difficult to assess it clearly i mean i agree with you that there are sort of breathless and pollyannish takes on both sides the most recent and celebrated one about that was sort of andrew yang's um you know uh bid for because he was so he was basically using the fear of automation um, to promote his his campaign. Um, There's certainly evidence that robots are getting much cheaper and much easier to put into uh, workplaces. So I uh, profiled a company that um, basically uh, rents robots. If you need a problem, this company develops a robot for it and you can rent it for uh, however long you want it for, and when you're done with it, they'll take it back. That greatly like lowers the barriers to entry to bringing automation onto a, a particular kind of assembly line or a particular kind of production process. So that is, um, you know, really significant. What, I guess what I was interested in was the discourse, was the way we sort of talk about um, robots. And there's some... You know, I uncovered stuff from previous generations where people were very fearful of the, the leisure and fearful of the sort of autonomy and potential monotony of a life where we are just mere adjuncts of machines at work or where machines do all of our work for us. It was kind of a strange, like, it was almost like a fear of alienated labor. Or something, and it was pretty interesting. You know, there was a, a there's a quote somewhere in there by Isaac Asimov, who's writing I think sometime in the 60s, and he's like, you know, we're all going to become machine tenders. And when you compare that to the fear of robots today, it's not about boredom or malaise; it's about losing a livelihood. And I think that has something to say about the different kinds of regimes that people were working under those different times. One where there was a larger uh, working class movement. There was a, a larger welfare state, let's even say. Um, whereas today, there does seem to be a sense of greater survival is, is hooked to your employment, hooked to the time you spend working. And so I was interested in that historical change. So what, what's the, what is the take-home point for, I mean, you know, should the average worker be uh, worried about uh, robots or what's the, what, what do we take from this? You know, there's a pretty clear uh, history of people em- embracing, I suppose, uh, technologies that limit the sort of arduous and bad work 
that we do. And I think it's fairly clear that 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 is present today, that people would welcome that kind of thing. The problem is that we don't have the control to do that. When we lose control or when we don't have control over technology, we um, either blame technology or, or blame other people rather than the people who are actually importing uh, this technology. So I think the main takeaway is, you know, workers and unions really need to think carefully uh, about having these kinds of issues in their bargaining contracts. And actually I discovered a lot of people were doing that. I did not think they would be, but there's actually sort of a, a recent increase of people talking about app use uh, in contract negotiations and um, electronic health records. I know Kaiser and, and the union there has a pretty interesting relationship to talking about that. So ways that, um, ways that you can exercise some degree of control or leverage over how technology is, is used, I think would be, you know, a crucial development. And what about gig work? You write about gig work in the book and you profile gig workers and, and talk about what their work lives and, and non-work lives are like. Um, but, you know, there's a similar way that gig work is talked about is that we're all going to be gig workers soon. We'll all become the precariat soon. What is the, what is the, is the how much truth is there to that kind of assertion? Yeah. So I think by now um, everyone has or a lot, many people have talked, I always, I'm that person who strikes up like an oafish conversation with their Lyft driver um, so, sometimes, and uh, uh, you get really different things. Um, some people really do see the their job as a side hustle and um, enjoy some of the freedoms and whatever, uh, scheduling freedoms that come with it. And some people see the uh, see those freedoms in very different ways. So I, I profile people who, for example, if you drive for Uber Eats, they say, well, you can work whenever you want. But guess what? You can't work when people don't want food, right? And you're, you sort of have to work when people want food that costs the most amount of money and will give the largest amount of tips. So you're actually much more constrained. So I interviewed a woman, um, who you know spent time uh, driving around each night from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. often with her six-year-old daughter in the back seat, um, delivering meals to college kids or travelers or or guests from wherever they are. And she obviously saw the thing very differently. The most important point I think to that gets and this does get some significant national news attention is that gig workers are workers and should be recognized as such, right? And they should have rights and uh, liberties and uh, benefits that come with being a worker. And the in independent contractor status has been such a lie and has been such a, um, a, such a way to exert so much more control over that workforce. And, you know, we see it in the ways that Lyft, you know, Uber and Lyft have threatened to just simply shut down when their workers are actually classified as workers. So I think whether you like your job as a driver or whether you use these companies or not, um, we would all be better off if they just actually owned up to the fact that it employs people. Which is something that is uh, 
under discussion right now, particularly in California, right? There was recently a, a ruling that exactly. uh, was was certainly a setback for the fight to get people to get gig workers to become classified as workers rather than independent contractors. But that is a, a major battle that's being fought right now. There's a lot of organizing going on within the gig economy um, by drivers, by delivery workers. I mean, even since the pandemic started, there was like five or six work stoppages at a number of important gig employers. I think Instacart workers sort of kicked it off. And so I have to imagine that that, that um, activity will lead somewhere. Uh, and I'm, so I guess I'm hopeful that it, that it will. Let's talk about the ideological aspects of this time crisis that, uh, that so many workers are facing uh that was to me one of the most interesting parts of your book is you're talking about what the ideological justifications for uh the the work and time regime that we have uh set up and you know we publish a lot in jacobin about uh the the kind of do what you love uh, ideology uh you write in the book about that particularly uh, being prevalent in Silicon Valley in kind of entertaining ways, which maybe we can talk about. Uh, but that kind of ideology that like you 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 need to not just work a job uh, to pay the bills, but you need to be uh, doing a job that you find fulfilling, that you you know love on a deep personal and existential level. Um, and I think when when people when it gets pointed out to people, it becomes obvious that like especially if you compare that kind of ideology with you know the fact that work is getting shittier and shittier in many ways and people are working longer and longer i mean it's clear that it's an ideological justification for uh for shitty work uh but also you uh point out that like this is what american workers are getting instead of raises uh you know instead of getting the stuff that the jobs are supposed to provide for you that that where you're like okay i can meet my bills i can pay my rent i can you know, pay for all the stuff that I need and have a have a decent life outside of work. It's like no, the work is going to colonize everything. It's not going to pay you enough, so you you don't don't get that expectation in your head. Uh, but just make sure that you love it, <laughs> even though it just sucks more and more and more. Uh, you just got to make sure that you love it. Right. Yeah. So this was the first chapter in the book I wrote, and the one that that I originally thought the whole book was going to be about. I came to. I teach at Middlebury College, as you know, and I came here in 2011, and I was expecting to find the hallmarks of like a liberal arts aesthetic with like, you know, a plodding workday and like Jane, pages of like Jane Eyre like flowing across the campus <laughs> in the autumn breeze. And instead I found like, you know, the largest major here is economics. Um, and, uh, Nothing against the economics department, you know, but it's like it's a very different. There's not as many English majors, in other words. It's a very different kind of mentality. And I was struck by basically um, young, well-off uh, people who were basically competing to see who worked the most. And it became interesting to me to think about, well, it's one thing to understand how how and why low-wage workers end up having to put more time in. It's something different to think about how uh, the relatively well-off people, um, sort of how their work time has, has grown as well. And I think a large, to some extent has to do with culture. So your point about it being ideological, I think is, 
exactly right. However, you know, as we were talking about earlier, connected to a material basis. And, and so I think this is one of the things that people don't appreciate enough about the meaningful work discourse. It's easy to sort of roll your eyes at the sort of cynical recuperation by managers and gurus about, oh, do what you love and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we actually all want meaningful jobs, you know, and we frankly, we deserve them. If we have to work to survive, at the very least, we should be able to like what we're doing for eight hours a day or more. And people in the 70s, I found to some extent, some groups in the 70s, some groups in the 80s really pushed for and desired a, a better kind of work regime. And so I was interested in sort of historicizing uh, this discourse, which is why I wrote that chapter. Yeah, I mean, I've always found that a, a somewhat strange part of some of that discourse. Like the problem is not that that people are necessarily encouraged to find meaningful work. In fact, you write in the book that that is like there's a right that we all should have. We all should be able to find meaningful uh, work. The problem is when that is used as this kind of ideological papering over of a, a, a work regime that's getting worse and worse and worse and people are getting you know paid less and less. And uh, yeah, that, that's the real issue. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 without sounding conspiratorial, it's no surprise that like the do your love ethos um, sort of exploded at the very same time that wages began to stagnate, you know, and it's not like there's some elite conspiracy. I mean, what I think is that there was a real sincere, genuine desire um, to leave monotonous, tiresome, grueling, long factory labor behind and there was just as much a real desire to um, to burn down your cubicle, you know, just like they did in Office Space, you know, which is like the best movie ever made, you know. I mean, and those desires were very real. However, those desires, I think, were easily re sort of recuperated and re-enlisted in a campaign to say, oh, well, if work is meaningful and if work is fulfilling and if work is good for the soul, then more of it must be better. And I think that that sort of transition was historical and was contested and was uh, sort of conjunctural, but but now has become sort of hegemonic. And you know, when I talk to undergrads now, as I was just doing this morning, you know, what are you going to do? There's oh, I just want to find something that that I love, and it's like, of course, uh, you know. You and you deserve it too. And, and I'm lucky to be talking about this because I do have a job that, for most part, I find pretty fulfilling. And by the way, I have a lot of control over when I can do it. Um, but I think that for a large numbers of people, um, you know, the desire to, or the the requirement to sort of not only do your job but to like it, you know, is ends up being an added burden. I mean, as I discussed at one point in the book, the NLRB had the National Labor Relations Board had to rule against a proposal that struck down, I think it was a T-Mobile case, that they, workers had to maintain a positive um, work environment or whatever. And the NLRB was like, no, you can't do that. You know, you can't enforce people to like their job. When I, you know, when I talked to um, uh, dancers at the, lusty lady, the old Lusty Ladies Trip Club, they used to talk about how management wanted to include a fun clause in their contract, that their work was fun. And they were like, look, 
Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but that's not your decision, right? Like that's up to us. And so they fought hard against, they resisted that, that imposition that work must somehow be uh, sort of enjoyable. You mentioned the Leslie lady that was in San Francisco. You also were in the San Francisco Bay Area to talk to tech workers in Silicon Valley. Uh, you have a funny scene where you get on a Google bus and you get kicked off of it for asking uh, tech workers about uh, their about their jobs. Uh, but you also there's also a very funny scene when you're at a kind of a, a swanky place where I don't know Silicon Valley deals get made, and you're talking to uh, a guy who works at Google. And he says, uh, quote, everywhere you look, you hear people, he's talking about in Silicon Valley, everywhere you look, you hear people talking about meaning. They aren't philosophers. They aren't psychologists. They sell banner ads. What do they know about meaning? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it's it's true. That is like that in Silicon Valley. That's like the heart of that kind of ideology. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's kind of funny that it it is used as he says to uh, justify selling banner ads. Yeah, exactly. Well, and there's really, I mean, there's a, someone should write a book. Why well, someone did write a book on this? There are there have been books written on the sort of marriage of the counterculture and the computer age, right? There's that whole TV show, Halt and Catch Fire, um, which is actually an, an amazing show. I'm not by no means a, a TV um, expert, uh, but it's an incredible scene. And I remember there's this one moment when the lead character stands on a table, like holding a sign to her comrades. And it's like, you know, we must, and basically the message of that scene is we must like do this work. Like this is what, this is like important to our lives. And I remember thinking of the same scene from Norma Ray, where she gets on the table <laughs> and she holds a sign that says, we must organize, right? Yeah. Like her science of union. union yeah. And um, it's just such an interesting historical switch that people uh, that were interested in a, let's destroy the office, let's have fulfilling, uh, you know, sort of drug-addled work days um, and have freedom to experiment with new kinds of employment relationships uh, ended up being the sort of leaders of a movement to, uh, you know, to keep people at work longer and longer through a couple perks. And I think that by now, my understanding is that by now there is a... uh, an understanding among a lot of leaders in tech that if people come in there gung-ho during interviews and they're like, that's all I care about, all they want to do is work for this stupid company, you know, that's like a red flag for them. Um, but, uh, you know, I was kicked off the Google bus um, a couple of years ago now, so things have changed a little bit. But I think the ethos is still um, uh, is still very prevalent, is still deployed when it's, when it's, when it's useful. So you are making this argument in the book about this very serious problem that we have as a society about our time and our lack of control over it. And you you make a proposal in the end for a sort of time agenda that this is something that uh, you know workers can unite around around this this shared experience of uh, not having control of their work lives or their lives uh, in general. So. Um, you already mentioned some of the the bright spots uh, on, on on that front, but I mean, what what should the the twenty first century time agenda look like? What should it include? What should be on the uh, the banners of the <laughs> movements in the in the street demanding their time back? Right, that's a great question. Um, 
you know, the old banners used to say basically um, fewer hours for more money. And for a long time, the labor movement uh, was more or less successful. Uh, and I think that during a crisis, especially like the, like the one we're in now, it often seems, it might seem tone deaf to talk about less, fewer hours when people are you know, unemployed, when people aren't getting CARES Act funding as much anymore, when unemployment insurance is running out. But there's a historical precedent here. It's exactly the time when, you know, during the Great Depression, when uh, the government utilized work sharing benefits. For example, they spread the work around. In other words, we're not going to lay off people. We are going to reduce your hours. We will use government programs to subsidize you at your previous wage, and we will avoid layoffs. Um, that is uh, a mechanism to reduce hours, and we should would absolutely be doing more of it now. We have work sharing legislation in the states. Um, we should be doing it. Uh, work sharing now is not a good banner, however, to put on a placard, um, uh, as you suggested. And I, but I do think there are other ways to get at this. And protests, for me, protests around healthcare or to expand the purview of care in general in an economy are some of the most significant ones. So. We could merely cut and paste programs from some peer nations in Western Europe, and that would be a plus, right? We work about 400 hours per year more than the productive Germans. Um, I think 250 hours more than French workers. They're not starving. They're doing just fine. You know, uh, they all have fancy phones. And I think uh, thinking about their... Uh, you know, welfare state provisions are important be exactly because, not only because it's good for people's health care, but because it allows people to step back from work. About half of Americans get their, their health insurance through a job. And minimum hour requirements and eligibility statutes require that people continue working, sometimes working longer than they like, just to maintain their health care. It's tragic and it's criminal, and we should stop it. When I, I interviewed workers from Ohio, from a laid-off plant in um, outside Dayton, and they were like, "Look, healthcare should be taken off the bargaining agenda of all union uh, bargaining things. It's it's a driver of lockouts. It's a driver of disruptions. Um, and most importantly, we spend so much time arguing about healthcare that we can't talk about higher wages and hours." And so universal health care, Medicare for all, whatever you want to call it, is, I think, an important goal of anyone thinking about a shorter hours movement. And uh, you talk about also the, the other sort of upsurges in the labor movement, the contemporary upsurges in the labor movement, like around teachers. And, and you, you talk about this as being an important issue for uh, teachers, too, right? Yeah. So I think what's interesting about teachers that I talk about a little bit um, Teachers tend to work. We think of teachers having the summers off, right? Um, I am the son of a teacher myself, and I distinctly remember our kitchen table um, piled high with um, second and third grade or second grade books for the entire summer because that's when you plan lessons. That's when you do a lot of important work. Um, recently, uh, we've seen teachers getting not only summer jobs to supplement their income, but night jobs after school, uh, a distressing trend for sure. Um, 
But I think the other thing that's interesting is that teachers have been so, they've been, they've taken so much leadership in, in uh, reorienting their, their, their workplaces through strikes, especially through strikes that do more than just talk about teacher work issues. Um, they talk about race and racism. They talk about immigration. They talk about housing. They talk about access to food. And there's no reason why um, workers can't also talk about hours, a reduction of hours in general um, when it comes to contract negotiations. This would be what people call bargaining for the common good. Free time should be a public good. And we should use our moments of negotiations with employers to think about winning like society-wide or regional-wide agreements to decrease work time, to do things that would, that would decrease work time. Well, that overall framework of bargaining for the common good, I mean, that that is what leftists have always said should be the agenda for exactly. unions, right? And, and you know, it can be used to increase free time for everybody. It can be used to win health care for everybody. And that is the way that we uh, get the goods, whether in, in 2020 or in 1919 or whenever. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to compare my situation to teacher unions, but... Um, so I'm a member of the AUP. We started an AUP chapter at my school. I'm one of the, the leaders of it. And uh, we talk about- and This is a higher ed. Union, the AUP right? is the American Association of University Professors. Sometimes people call it the American Association of Uppity Professors. Uh, e- either way, the point is often to talk about academic freedom, issues of free speech, and our, um, our campus chapter of it has decided to uh, work with staff issues and to work with student issues. And we've had meetings about uh, campus policing and um, the obviously the, the COVID healthcare stuff at work. So there's ways in which we can take advantage of dealing with our employer in ways that, that deal with society-wide gains. And I think the labor movement um, you know, just imagine the popularity of a union movement that got to win, that helped win healthcare for everyone. I mean, think of what a boon that would be for union organizing. That, uh, and so I think that, you know, as far as an agenda, I typically, as a scholar, I don't like being in the business of telling people what to do or telling unions what to do, organizers, etc. But there's a lot of people right now in the union movement who understand this perfectly, who know that winning sort of society-wide gains um, is the way to go. So let's imagine this uh, pandemic is over and, uh, you know, we have we have normal freedoms to go and do stuff that we want to do. We're allowed to go to restaurants and bars or travel or whatever. What's uh, number one on, on the Jamie McCollum agenda for the uh, free time? And you've got uh, an increased amount of uh, freedom in your life to use your time as you see fit. Oh, wow. What, uh, what an amazing question. I, I'm stalling uh, just thinking about it. I mean... You, the, the, I mean, the, the, the society has just made you unable to even consider this question because it's so far outside of the realm of possibility uh, it, it, right it now. Really, it really is. So, so I'll, I'll say two things. One, which is, you know, uh, obviously, um, I mean, so I remember being a PhD student and I wrote my, my thesis advisor, who was Stanley Aronowitz, one of the great uh, labor uh, scholars, theorists, philosophers, in, in my opinion, of the last half century. And um, I wrote him in June and I said, I'd like to meet with you to, um, to discuss something. And he wrote back an email, I almost remember it verbatim. It said, you know, 
one of the, the best reasons to become a professor. There are three reasons to become a professor. June, July, and August. <laughs> right? Uh, come to me in September. And, and I was like, man, I want that guy's job. You know? And, and I did. Um, and so and the freedom that comes with uh, my job allows you to travel. And writing this book, um, you know, the, the, one of the most rewarding things about it was going around the country and meeting people, talking to workers and hearing what they're, de- they're dealing with, hearing what they're, what they're going through and what they're doing. And to me, I, I really do miss that, that travel. I miss that freedom of, of movement. Um, the other thing I think, as we were talking about this earlier, is that anyone right now in America with a small child um, is, you know, is just going absolutely insane. So, what, you know, what I want more or less is for schools, uh, daycares, camps, uh, playgrounds or whatever to be, uh, you know, wildly open 24-7 um, so that we can do that. And I think that uh, the relationship, the, what the pandemic has showed us more and more is that the workplace, freedom to have a workplace as we knew it is so intimately tied with um, the sort of power and liberty that a family has to sort of live its life the way they can live it. Uh, I feel like I'm going toward the, the angles route here, but it's just it's just so crucial. And uh, so I would like that to change, not only for my son's benefit, but just for, um, you know, mental uh, and emotional sanity. Um, those are two things. I guess the last one, I'll, I'll go for the, the other one, which would be that... Uh, um, there was a, there were reports early on in the pandemic that people were becoming bored and that they had too much free time. That seems to be not the case, right? Like by now, we you know uh, most studies of VPN usage and email usage and whatever show that we're we're working more not only longer hours but at, at worse and more erratic hours, including white collar workers. And um, I would like to have. Um, uh, much more control over just over that over that time back because my my job can actually be quite enjoyable um and can be quite rewarding and i do have a lot of liberties that other people uh don't and um um i i miss a sort of uh more leisurely work day and i'd like to get back to it well to the barricades let's go i'm ready i'm ready to (laughs) Ready to get it with you. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Jamie. Okay, thank you so much, Micah. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue, or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. 